love the way that the voices play off of each other and the ways that memories of, you know, historical moments compare and contrast and that the reader is trying to find the truth between the lines. was thinking about how so much of entertainment and show business is about presentation and the way that people want to tell their own stories. They're not always necessarily being honest, but they're projecting the personality that they want people to be reading, you know, and this is the premise of the book is that this is the actual book out in the world, you know, that is sort of a record of this moment in time. Was sort of like my love letter to Black women. And I think there are a few different dimensions of Black women that I explore in the book. And I was really hoping that those readers would see themselves in different ways in, in these characters. And they have. And that's been really gratifying and probably my favorite comments, you know, from Black women who say, I see myself or I love Opal and I love that you've made her so fully human, you know? Hello, and welcome to season two of Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. I was going to do a fanfare, but then I thought it sounded really rubbish. So I'll just say, and I'm Natalie Jameson, and it's genuinely exciting to be back for a second series. See, now I just want to hear your fanfare. Here's, <laughs> I'll do mine, I'll do mine, you do yours, okay. all right? Yeah. My fanfare would go... Oh, I'd just go... Da, da, da. It sounded okay. a bit Star Wars-ish, maybe. <laughs> so here we are again then. Can you tell we're a bit giddy? <laughs> yeah. It's really nice to be back, isn't it? It's nice to be... Nice to stay here, to see you die. Of course, um, I haven't seen you, and I was just working this out mm. before um, we came on the podcast. I don't think I've seen you, Natalie, in person since August 19, which is terrifying. Wow, yeah. And so what we're recording this, where are we? What month is it? June, June 2021. 2021. So yeah, two years, pretty much. As we record this, it might still be coming home. <laughs> we don't know. As you listen to it, it probably hasn't come home. <laughs> Yeah, and if you don't know what that refers to, it's fine as well. <laughs> so do you want to tantalise and tease with a few names that we've got coming up before we get to the main event for today? Do you want to do that? Yeah, just briefly then. So featuring that I can tell you about already on season two of bestsellers, we've got Zakia Delilah Harris talking about The Other Black Girl. We've got Erin Kelly talking about Watch Her Fall. Claire McIntosh, I know a big favourite of yours, Phil. Her mm. new book, Hostage, mm. is coming soon. Um Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian and has written a new book called Project Hail Mary. Yeah, loads. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? It's a really good lineup. And if you heard our trailer last week, then hopefully you'll have already heard me give Natalie credit for putting a number of books my way on this season that hadn't come to me. And I just, I still think that's one of the most exciting feelings with reading is when you discover something, you've never heard anything about it. And someone says, you should read this, you know, you'd like this. And I go, really? And 30 pages in, you're hooked. I love that feeling. Yay. And that's what we want to do with this series. And with everything we talk about, um, really, is that we've said it many times before, we hate any kind of literary snobbery. If you like reading, if you like books, just enjoy like it. Like, right? Yeah, it's yeah. fine. And truly hope that you will discover some new gems on this series as well. And so... And so let's get started with our first author of season two of bestsellers and this was a book that natalie put my way that hadn't previously been mentioned to me and i devoured it and thoroughly enjoyed it and here's natalie to give you the big build up for dawny walton joining us on this week's bestsellers is somebody that i know phil and i are particularly excited about because we both adore this book it's first time author but not first time for writing about popular culture at all but dawny walton has written this fabulous book called the final revival of opal and nev uh, as a career she's been a journalist working for again publications that phil and i adore like entertainment weekly hugely influential i'd say entertainment magazine uh, based in the states but i know lots of people in the UK and elsewhere around the, the world go to that as well. And yeah, it's just a, an utter pleasure to welcome Dawny to bestsellers. So thanks for coming on. I am so pleased to be here. Good to see you. Uh, chat with you, Natalie and Bill. <laughs> Can we start actually talking about your pop culture references and what sort of music you, you love and, and, and grew up loving? I'm always 
I love the kind of question. I know it's a bit of a, a basic one, but what the first gig you ever went to see? Because I think sometimes that can inform a lot about somebody. The first concert I ever went to see, I was eight years old and I saw Michael Jackson and no his brothers way. on the Victory Tour, 1984 in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> and I don't remember a whole lot about it, except there was a lot of screaming and we were sort of in nosebleed seats, so you could barely see anything. But I got this giant commemorative book of like glamour portraits of Michael and all his brothers. And I pawed through that thing until basically the pages fell out of it. <laughs> so that was a Jackson 5 gig? It, yeah, pretty much Jackson's, yeah. Because a mate yeah. of mine's got a theory, right, that if you're, and I think that that's very cool. If your first gig is very cool, he thinks that you're making it up. So my first gig at 15, right, was Deacon Blue at the NEC because the NEC in Birmingham is kind of a bit more of a, it's a safer venue. I mean, it was when I was 17, it was Jesus Jones at the Digbeth Academy and Mike Edwards, the bass player, jumped on top of a big bass bin and it nearly fell over. All these security rushed the stage to stop this bass bin toppling that was looking like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you know, and it was kind of, that was the first moment I sniffed rock and roll in the air, but that's not to denigrate Deacon Blues gig. It was a great gig, but it was seated. It was in an arena. Do you know what I mean? That was, what about you, Nat? Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what this is going to say about me. I don't know if you know what my first gig was, Phil, but um, when I was a similar age to Dorney, I think about mm. sort of eight as well, might have been nine, uh, but I went to see at Wembley Arena, mm. the Kids from Fame live. <laughs> So, I was obsessed with the TV show, The Kids from Fame. And I was gutted because Leroy, who was my favorite character, he was ill. Oh, no. <laughs> but um, was Coco there? Was Coco, Coco was there? there? Yeah, Erica That's Gimple was there. And Debbie Allen as Lydia Grant, who was my other favorite. She was there as well. Um, and so was Danny and so was Doris. Uh, yeah, and that was my first. And, and my memories of it are that I don't think you could say that The Kids from Fame were rock and roll, but they were certainly enthusiastic and it was a whole mix of a crowd. It was such this weird blip of a phenomenon, I think in the UK, especially the kids from fame. And I also got, I had a scarf, I got the uh, program with all the glossy pictures and- Did you want yeah. to live forever? <laughs> See, there's, there's so much more than that one song to the kids from fame. Um, it was it was amazing. You're getting and... defensive already, you were only eight. <laughs> no, know what you should tell Dorney though, because this always impresses me, that the music's in your family, isn't it? It is. I don't know which bit you think is impressive. Your godfather for a start. Ah, yeah. Uh, so my godfather was Matt Monroe, who sang one of the Bond themes and he sang Born Free and, oh. and stuff. But I think I think also to so to counter my kids from fame story, I used to make mixtapes um, and I've got my the first <laughs> mixtape I made. I think I was five and I used to taper off the, the top 40, the charts, and I'd mix and I used to obsessively record Blondie. Ah, um, cool. so I loved Heart of Glass and stuff like that so I think there's like a bit of a eclectic mix of music in my background I love it weren't mixtapes fabulous I really miss the tangible days of music where you'd labor over those things and mm. choose different color pens and do little doodles and yeah Dawn have you made anybody a, a playlist it's not quite the same thing is it I have, yeah. Um, I actually, I made, I made a playlist based off this novel, really, which is really fun to do. Um, but yeah, it's not really the same. You put so much care into a mixtape and it's so difficult to get the timings right. But yeah, yeah. Well, we should explain about the music in this, shouldn't we, Natalie? Because um, this is so brilliantly written, Dorney, right, that I had to, so we should set it up that it, it reads like a Rolling Stone profile on, on artists, on two artists. So that's, that's how it reads. And I'm 10 pages in and I send Natalie a WhatsApp knowing that she's already read it. And I go, have I missed something here? Should I know who Opal Jewel is? And then thankfully she replied that Opal was fictitious because there was a moment, Dorney, where you had me, where I started to Google Opal Jewel. And I'm thinking maybe it's just an American artist that didn't travel over here. And I'm going to turn out that she's some amazing iconoclast, you know, from late 60s, early 70s music in America. That's how well you pulled the rug over my eyes. Oh, that's amazing. That's a huge compliment. And I do hear that quite a bit that people run to Wikipedia to see what they've missed. <laughs> and how do you think you managed to pull that off? So I'm sure it wasn't easy because I know that writing a book isn't easy, but you, so you, you, you chose to write this as a series of first person accounts of what happened. And was that obviously a very conscious way to try and make it as real as possible? Yeah, so I, I wrote it in the oral history style, and that is a journalistic format that I've used in my career. Um, 
that I've edited and read and loved when I was at Entertainment Weekly. There's been a few nonfiction books um, that I've loved been written in that style. And what I loved about it for this novel was that I think it instantly elevates Opal and Nev to sort of iconic status. You know, you're instantly saying these are people who deserve to be at this level. People have things to say about them. They have strong opinions about them. There are stories, wild stories. And I love the way that the voices play off of each other and the ways that memories of, you know, historical moments compare and contrast and that the reader is trying to find the truth between the lines. And I think I just wanted to make all the characters as detailed as possible. You know, I wanted to make it very sensory. You know, I wanted to be able to see them and hear them. And it was a little tricky to pull off because, you know, there's the fictional reader who knows all this history. And then there's the actual reader who doesn't know this at all. So it was a balancing act between, um, you know, trying to be very sort of blase about it, you know, like, of course, everybody knows Opal and Nev, but also like getting them across and explaining who they are and what they represent. And there's a bit I wanted to read out now. Um, well, there's loads of bits I want to put to you actually to talk about. But in relation to what you're talking about, your because you, you're clearly American, your research on British culture and British singers is immaculate. And and I, I was convinced that you were also from Birmingham where I'm from, right? Because Nev is from Birmingham and it comes across so authentically. And um, it's also no coincidence that um, Opal, and, and actually Jimmy gets some of the greatest lines in this book for me. And Opal says on, on, um, on British music, I could at least respect the British rock and rollers. They were clear on their influences, clear that what they were doing was just a riff on Negro singing the blues. And better than that, at that moment in time, they appreciated what freshness we could bring to the sand. Billy Preston was practically another one of the Beatles by then, you know, that organ on Get Back and Don't Let Me Down, holding everybody together at the end. And of course, Mary had that moment to shine, outshine Mick, matter of fact, and that was A-OK -okay by Mick. So if I was going to get into any creative partnership with a white person, I just automatically trusted a Brit to be better. Is that your opinion? And if not, how did you come to that opinion to give it to Opal? Well, I think, you know, as a rock and roll fan, you know, and I got very heavily into rock and roll music, especially alternative music, post-punk out of the UK when I was a teenager. I just really did recognize, and also in my research, I recognize, especially in the 1970s and the early 70s and late 60s as well, that a lot of British rock and rollers were looking to Black women singers um, to sort of bring something different to the sound. And, you know, the spark for this movie actually came when I was watching 20 Feet from Stardom. And there's this bit in it with Mary Clayton, who sings on, on Gimme Shelter. And they talk about this sort of moment where it was like, this was the hot thing, you know, this was how, um, you know, looking to gospel sounds, looking to blues sounds was a, how a lot of British bands, you know, became distinct or, you know, added a new dimension to what they were doing. And, you know, I, I do think I'm a Beatles fan. I, I've, you know, obsessed. <laughs> And I think they were always very clear that, you know, they kind of worshiped like Little Richard and loved Chuck Berry and loved this, this music that uh, they were making very early on that they were covering. And they were very clear about it in a way that say, you know, Elvis Presley was not really quite the same, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Elvis having the song Hound Dog, which was originally performed by a black woman, a blues woman, Big Mama Thornton, you know, and him sort of taking that song and making it his, his own, but never really, you know, kind of suddenly Elvis is the king of rock and roll and, and there's something missing there. And I think the British music that I loved, it at least acknowledged the influence. I think yeah. it's a really interesting point though, because um, so in my day job, uh, I produce Gregory Porter's podcast, which is an interview-paced podcast. Um, yeah. And he, we did an episode recently with him and Moby um, because they've worked together. And they were talking quite a lot about cultural appropriation and Gregory Porter's take on this. And I hope I'm not um, misrepresenting him, but you should totally obviously listen to that podcast because it's, it's really well produced. Um, <laughs> he, um, uh, he was saying that he doesn't really have an issue with cultural appropriation as long as 
there is respect and understanding of where things have come from because everybody's going to add their own stamp and take to it but you just have to be respectful of that so he was saying he recently uh, he's had some people say to him oh like your new sound it's just like the rolling stones and he's like uh <laughs> i think you'll find <laughs> Wow. But do you know what, Natty? I um, I interviewed the Stones in 2002 for 40 licks. It was their 40th anniversary. We had 25 minutes with each Stone, and I asked Keith in particular. Um, initially, I was asking him um, how he'd found his way into substance use, and what he said to me was that he said um, we were playing in venues, and and he never once referred to black people as black people. They were cats, right? And he said. We were uh. We were playing with these cats, right? And he said, these cats were going to like two or three in the morning. And so I said to one of them, I'm exhausted, man. How can you keep playing till two or three in the morning? And he said, try this. And he said, but everything that was in the Rolling Stones songwriting was founded out of kind of 20s, 30s black music. And in fact, then I remember being, I was asked on air once by Nikki Campbell during the, you familiar with the MOBO Awards here that we have, Dory, the music? Yes. Of black Awards? Yes. And he said to me, isn't there an argument that all music is music of black origin? And I think certainly most popular music is. I'm not sure about classical, whether you stretch it to classical, but I think with popular music, certainly you can argue that, can't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, rock and roll is from the gospel church. It's from blues. These are all black forms of music. And it's interesting to think of my own evolution of fandom. You know, my family are huge music lovers and generationally it's different. Like my grandparents were into the jazz vocalists. So, you know, um, Sarah Lena, the name of the journalist character is sort of my, my homage to that, you know, cause they so love like Sarah, Sarah Vaughn and, and Lena Horn. And, and <laughs> my grandfather was in love with Lena Horn and they had all their records, Nat King Cole in the house. And then my parents were in their 20s and the 1970s and were very much into Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and, and that um, kind of conscious soul music. And so, you know, my own curiosity when I was old enough to start buying records and, and have my own tastes, it was building upon that. You know, I loved all that. And then I got curious about rock and roll and about punk and about all of those different things. And so I really do see it as an evolution and it all is from black music. We've yeah. done that thing again, haven't we? Where we've raced off and got stuck into it. We haven't actually <laughs> set the book up. We should really, <laughs> we should just explain to people. So uh, while it, we've said it's done in the style of a, a rock profile, it's it's a book in, initially about um, Opal and Nev and they start playing together. Then something happens. And then the book, you, you span almost 30 years, don't you? I think possibly even a, a fraction longer in trying to trace what happened to them. And, as I'm reading it, um, I wanted to know how difficult it was for you to construct a full, almost a full career biog for both of these people and several other musicians and to manage to blur it into the real world of the time mm. enough that it's believable. Do you know what I mean? It must have been really tricky. It was a fun puzzle, though. I mean, all the research I did was just like me entertaining myself, like going down, <laughs> you know, um, YouTube rabbit holes and watching old talk show clips and watching old performances and looking at photography and just really trying to insert them into a world that exists and trying to frame a believable mythology around them, a believable story around them. And I think, you know, it's just, I'm a pop culture obsessive, always have been, you know, worked in entertainment journalism for so long that a lot of this stuff is just me geeking out on the page. <laughs> <laughs> is there any particular yeah. reference you're most pleased of like got in there I mean there are so many that likewise Phil and I are, are pop mm. culture geeks too that's why you know we've both uh, done entertainment journalism as well but anybody you were like yeah I want to like shine a light on these people oh gosh well oh there were a few I mean I loved kind of doing research about Max's Kansas City uh, which is a legendary New York venue and about the people who used to go there. David Bowie met Iggy Pop there. So I loved having Opal on her nights out stop through Max's. That was a good one. But the one that made me laugh the most was probably in part three of the book when we talk about Opal's career at this moment. And it's her music career has sort of dropped off significantly and she's doing little like silly movies to make 
to make money. And there was like a nineties movie that I made up. That's like a teen witch movie that I really, I just loved. I thought it was so funny. And you put, just, you put at least one real actress in, didn't you? I put a few real, yeah. Christina Applegate was the star. Right. And um, Swoozy Kurtz was yeah. in it. And Penelope Ann Miller. Penelope Ann Miller. And this was yeah. never made, right? And it was, no, it was never made. It was just funny to think about. You know? So do you have to check with those people? Do you have to call their people and say, I'm going to mention you in a book? No, thank goodness. Really? Because, <laughs> I mean, this, no spoiler, but the film tanked. The fictional film you made up with real it people did. in tanked. <laughs> it did, it did. But it had one moment with Opal that, that people later went on to make memes out of that moment. So <laughs> it was worth something. Um, so before we hear, hopefully you read a little bit of the book to us, I wanted to ask about that um, kind of intersection between music and fiction books, because I think... There are obviously other fiction books that have been written about music and it's so hard to get that sort of passion across, I think, if you really love music. And, you know, there's just kind of ways of writing about it. that I, I think it's, you know, it's a real skill. And I wondered if you had any thoughts of wanting to expand Opal and Nevertal. So, for example, I don't know if you know, there was a book that came out about five years ago, I think, called Greatest Hits by an author, Laura Barnett. He'd written this other book that was hugely popular in the UK and I think in the US as well called The Versions of Us. And she wrote a book about a fictional singer-songwriter called Cass Wheeler, I think it was. Um, and as part of the project, there's a British singer-songwriter called Catherine Williams, who exists, who is real, who wrote and recorded an entire album to go with the book. Oh, so wow. when they did the, um, so when you're reading in the book and you're reading about these, you know, songs throughout her mm. career that mean things, those songs have actually been written by a professional yeah. musician. Mm. Um, such a cool project. And they did like a book and a, a book and song tour. So I went to see them in this like tiny pub in South London and they did a book reading and then Catherine would get out her guitar and sing some of the songs. And it's such a kind of evocative experience so I don't know if you had anything of that or would like to do develop further things with Opal and Oh, absolutely I mean I would love for somebody to make the songs in this <laughs> book you know I haven't gone so far as to write the lyrics for every song but there was one or two where I did write full lyrics they didn't make it to the book but I just took like a snippet or, or two there's also a photograph in the book that I was thinking, oh, it would be so cool to create this yeah, photo. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah. yeah Again, yeah. I thought I'd seen it. I'm like, I, I can I can see it so Yeah, well I had an image of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, I would love to like work with a, you know, a fine yeah. art photographer to, to pull off something like that would be so cool. Yeah. Can I tell you what I had in my mind and you tell me how far or what? For, for, so for Opal, I had... Um, yeah someone looking like Aretha Franklin or maybe Gladys Knight, but younger. And then uh -huh. obviously loads more sass. And I'm not sure how that affected my mental image in my imagination of Opal, but that's what I had for Opal. And then for Nev, I was thinking a ginger buddy Holly. Oh, I like that. Yeah. These are, these are all new. Um, yeah. What, what um, do people say to you? Recommendations to me. Oh my gosh. I've heard... The one that I hear the most for Nev is Ed Sheeran. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I don't know. Just the ginger thing, isn't it, though? Yeah, I guess I so. I mean, Nev's from a different so. era to Ed Sheeran, isn't he? And that's I think yeah. like different sensibilities as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Not quite as poppy. I think gets, so too, gets poppier. I hear that a lot, yeah, for, for Nev. Um, for Opal, gosh, I hear people saying, what have they said? Um, Janelle Monet, I've heard, I've heard, um, you know, people envision, and this, this is accurate because this is who I had in my mind when I first started writing physically, I was thinking of like a Grace Jones kind right. of um, mm -hmm. figure. So yeah, I'm open to hearing all of that. That's yeah. all hugely fun to think about. <laughs> yes, likewise I had, I think I had a bit of Grace Jones and this is probably just because of how you describe opal jewel and at various stages as well and because uh, you talk about her baldness um at times as well so i had skin from skunk anansi oh, yeah. as well ah, yeah she's so amazing <laughs> and i think so for that great. same kind of like kick-ass 
you know, won't take any crap from anybody attitude. I had and you know what? There. We had Skin on about three months ago and she was utterly charming. And I was kind of secretly terrified going into the interview because I adored her. But like you, I'd thought of just seeing this kick-ass kind of front woman and just thinking, I wonder if she'll be scary. And she was really gentle on air, really the opposite of the persona. It was incredible. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, I follow her on Instagram and she's she's a good follow. <laughs> I think there's something as well, though, about that in the the way you write about these characters. I really enjoyed reading the different representations of confidence and power, especially as in, you know, it's such a complex thing to get across, but, you know, Opal Jewel is somebody who appears really confident the whole time publicly, but actually has a lot of insecurity going on, certainly early on. And and the other thing that kind of struck me was that it's, there are, surely some unlikable characters in this book but you write everybody with an empathy so that you can see where they're coming from and how just again knowing how challenging that actually is to do so congratulations again oh, thanks <laughs> yeah you know I, I was thinking about how so much of entertainment and show business is about presentation and the way that people want to tell their own stories and so it was always being cognizant that that's what they're doing. You know, they're not always necessarily being honest, but they're projecting the personality that they want people to be reading, you know, and this is the premise of the book is that this is the actual book in out in the world, you know, that is sort of a record of this moment in time and how people would want to be remembered. So of course there are cracks that begin to you know, show in those facades as, as the reader goes along. But at first, you know, the first half of the book is just everybody full on bravado, like their most idealized version of how they see themselves. Um, let's, we should hear some, shouldn't we? Yeah. I think we've whet your appetite enough <laughs> so that you will enjoy this passage that Dawny Walton has agreed to read for you from the final revival of Opal and Niv. Where do we join this? So we are going to join chapter seven, which is when Opal, who is from Detroit, first comes to New York. And she's just sort of, you know, stepping into the city for the first time. She's in the back of a cab and, and just her first impressions. But the first part is, you know, the context around that uh, by the character Sonny. And then we'll get into the Opal voice. I feel like it's only fitting to give you a big rock and roll build up. Do you want one? Yes, always, please. Reading exclusively on bestsellers from her debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. Please give it up for the amazing, the extraordinarily talented Dawny Walton. (laughs) Opal Robinson arrived in New York City via bus in July 1970, the same month and year Funkadelic dropped that fierce edict to free your mind and your ass will follow. She lugged to the taxi stand at Port Authority two duffel bags, one of them bursting with brand new fabrics, sewing supplies, and paperbacks, the other stuffed with an assortment of shoes for every season and cheap synthetic wigs. As for the fluffy Afro wig that would not fit into her luggage, she wore that during her travels. In her jeans pocket was a slip of paper with the address for her new home in Harlem. She had found the room listed in the classifieds of the Amsterdam News and arranged to rent it via phone from her station at Michigan Bell after the other accounts payable girls had gone home. She gave the address to the hack and from the back seat of his cab, Opal absorbed her new environs. In this city of nearly 8 million people, she was completely anonymous. No one she knew, neither relative nor acquaintance could say her exact whereabouts. Opal Jewel. I'm an old chick now and I like my quiet, but when I first came to New York, I was 21 years old. I could feel the energy of that place jolt through my body as soon as I stepped off the bus. At first, you just noticed the nastiness. You know, everything was so extra, extra hot, extra funky, extra loud. But sitting in the back of that yellow cab, I was like an astronaut in a shell traveling through space, pressed up against the window and taking in the stars. There were businessmen in brown and blue suits looking clean and sharp, Teflon dons on those dirty ass streets. I saw swarms of moving people, people who knew rules I didn't yet know. And in the swarm, you could pick out gray haired society ladies and Hispanic workmen and Hasids in their outfits, the curls and hats and coats, even in that summer heat. And then we drove alongside Central Park and I saw a fully grown sister on roller skates. 
in a plaid sundress and cornrows, hollering at folks to get out the way and rumbling down the sidewalk like it was the most natural thing in the world. And I thought, oh my God, my people. Amazing, amazing. And I should know this, so forgive me for having to ask you this. Have you done your own audio Because if you haven't, you should. There is an audio book, yes, and it's a full cast. Um, oh, okay. Yes, yes. So there are many amazing voices. My favorites being Andre DeShields, who's a stage actor here in, in the States, plays Virgil LaFleur, who is Opal stylist and best friend. And the actor who plays Howie Kelly is also horrible as the characters is horrible, but hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Can yeah. I ask you, I mentioned earlier that Jimmy Curtis gets a lot of the, the, the best lines. I don't want you to explain much about who Jimmy is other than he's the drummer in the band. <clears throat> and we'll leave that there for now. You find yeah. out like in the first few pages though, don't you, who he is pretty much? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not I'm too much being... of a spoiler, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just want people to experience it as freshly as I do. <laughs> I kind of don't want to be giving anything away. But but um, there's a quote I've written down from Jimmy, which I want to read to you. And it gets into um, the issue of... Now, Natalie and I were discussing this earlier, and I said racism, and Natalie said prejudice. So I think it's, you know, let's do both, because they're slightly different, but that you address both themes in this book. So this is Jimmy Curtis in your book. The music itself don't have a colour. It's a continuum that starts with the drum and branches out from there. The industry and the money, that's what can mess everything up. I understand where black folks are coming from. Rock and roll wasn't nothing but a step away from the blues, but the whites acted like it was their brand new bag and then had the nerve to cut most of us out when the money was starting to roll in. So we were like, well, fuck it. That's yours now and this is mine. And don't nobody have no business crossing lines. See, this is what I say about America. We always got to be assigning shit, always labeling it and stuffing it in a box, always dictating who's allowed to own what. But at the end of the day, that don't have nothing to do with the music. You dig? The music is fire and passion and soul. And however you express it is how you express it. And the reason I wanted to read that to you was to get your view on, on this almost inferred battle between black and white and ownership of music and what your take is on it and through the journalism you've done over the years. I really do believe that there is music and then there's the music industry. And, mm. and when money becomes involved, everything gets a lot more complicated. Um, I did another interview where people asked me, you know, did I think that, you know, music could bridge gaps, could bring people together? And absolutely music itself, I do believe that it can. I mean, I think that it is, incredible to look at the history of America, America through the lens of music and how at some of the most, you know, terrible times in this country in terms of Jim Crow and um, racism, that black music was hugely popular with everybody. You know, the fact that music could cross those lines when actual physical black people in their bodies could not sit at lunch counters. It's like crazy. Um, but uh, I think that I was also kind of thinking about when I was a teenager and for better or for worse, music was something that could be so defining of who you were. I mean, music, what you listen to kind of had an influence on what you wore, you know, your style, your friend circles, you know, what you did on a Saturday night. Um, it's very different now. And I think that's cool in a lot of ways because you can be free to sample whatever kinds of sounds you're interested in on Spotify and it's nobody else has really anything to do with it, you know, but it's complicated because there was that connection that we had to music that felt um, very deep when I was a teenager, but it was hard because I was a black girl and there weren't a lot of black people in the music at the time that I was interested in, you know? So it's a lot of really complicated things that I was working out in this book and things that I've been thinking about for years. Well, one of the things that you've done really cleverly in it is that you've shown you working out, I think. So um, there's quite a few references, um, well, quite a few uses, I should say, of the N-word in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes that's from black characters using it. And just occasionally it's referred to that white characters have said it to black characters. And as I'm reading, it, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what, I wonder how Dorney reconciled this when she was writing it. And then you address it, right? Because 
again, without giving too much away, Oprah and Nev go on a, a real big chat show, don't they? A huge chat show in the States. Mm-hmm. And Such a great scene. The host, <laughs> the host asked them uh, about, or asked Oprah about using it in a song, right? And, and Nev. And obviously, remember that Nev is white and Opal is black, right? And I thought, oh, this is such class from you to put all of this in a scene, because this was everything I was thinking about you writing, thinking, I wonder what this scene she's come to, to put because it's such an inflammatory word still, isn't it? And there's, yes, I, it I'm is. familiar with all the arguments around reclamation and black people reclaiming it. And then, you know, but is it still offensive just hearing it? I mean, I won't mm-hmm. say it on this podcast, I will just use the mm-hmm. euphemism, the N word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me what, what you thought about that and how you mapped all that out and came to that conclusion for yourself. I think, um, yeah, I was thinking of that. I know, I just, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is is a very complicated word. Um, It's a word that I personally, I I don't say it personally in in my life just because um, I just, I didn't grow up saying like, when I was growing up, it was still very shocking. It was still very um, offensive. And I do think uh, that it is still offensive depending on who says it as Mm -hmm. as the point I made in in the book. Um, But I think thinking about language in that way and the history of that word and how it's changed and also thinking about honestly, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono made a song called woman is the N word of the world, right? Which was like, okay, wow, (laughs) I'm a Beatles fan, but I have a real problem with that in many ways. And the fact that there was such comfort in saying that. And so I also wanted to get at how it was sort of um, even complicated in that era in a different way where, you know, you have a musical icon who is thinking that they're making a very profound point in, in, in using this word, but it's mm. like, you don't have the right to do that. Like that's. And what about um, the, the one that stuck out to me? You must've seen Training Day with Denzel. Of course. And obviously he refers to everybody yeah. in there as my N word. What, <laughs> what about that? How does that sit with you as a black person? Oh, I don't. Was it Denzel Washington who was saying that? Or is it, oh, oh. Well, I think, um, you know, I think I agree with um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who is an intellectual and a writer here uh, in the States and actually a friend of mine. Um, I think that his, his argument about it is what I agree with, right? So it's like, if you're married, right? If you're married to a woman, you know, or if you're better yet, Natalie, if you mm-hmm. um, have a woman who's a very close friend of yours, and this might not be the same with your friends, but within my friends, right? Like, I can be like, bitch, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, it was very playful, right? Like, mm-hmm. but if it was, you know, if it was some, if it was Phil who called your friend, bitch, you don't, that's very different, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very different. And so that's the way I feel about um, the N-word and why I feel that Black people can say it and use it in that sense and that white people cannot. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I think what I was referring to a bit earlier as well is it it all kind of so much comes down to cultural education as well, you know, and understanding that it's going to be different for everybody too. Um, One of the most intimidating things I have had to do in my entertainment journalism career which I'll just mention at this juncture because I think you'll enjoy it uh, is I was probably what like mid-20s I think maybe late 20s and um, working for the BBC and they were making a documentary for music radio about the n-word and the use of it and it was being made by uh, I can't remember the entire team that was working on it but it was led by a black journalist it being the BBC there were loads of like regulations to go through but I happened to be interviewing Jay-Z um, and I had to go interview Jay-Z on his, he had arrived into the UK on his private jet. He just flew into Luton airport, didn't get off the plane. So a series of just a handful of us had to be walked into his private jet where he was literally sitting on a throne surrounded by oh his entourage, God. which was pretty terrifying anyway. Um, and I had to ask Jay-Z about the N word for this documentary on his private jet. Um, and it was just like, 
was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And Yikes. he was obviously great. But there was that moment when I said it and I said, we're doing this documentary, trying to unpick it. Um, and everyone just went, whoa, you can't say that. I was like, I'm really sorry. I didn't say the word. But yeah, that word. Yeah, um, yeah it's still such a, a complex thing. It is. It's really about context, you know, yeah. and a lot of... <laughs> You know, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding still here in the States. And I think there are a lot of white people confused about why they cannot say it. And to me, it's 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 a complicated and, you know, I feel a little like I'm sweating a little bit talking about it because it's such... <laughs> Sorry, it's that's such, my fault. It's I, should, a, and I should make clear when I ask you the question, I wasn't making you the official spokesperson for it. You know I mean, I was yeah. just intrigued because you've written it in the book. And I think, but I think you're right, you know, one of the most frustrating things, obviously, is that so much talk about racism is put towards people of colour, when it should be Mm. white people talking about it just as much, and they Mm. don't talk about it because they don't write about it, because they don't understand it, and they Mm -hmm. don't, they're embarrassed, I think, as well, and just so many things, but, or they're just oblivious to it, so. What did Jay-Z say to you about it? I can't you know what I think without listening back to it I'm pretty sure I blanked out what he said because I was so no I was just um I was just anxious to kind of make sure that I wasn't offending anybody and Mm. um yeah uh so I think I think I was building up to actually saying the words in a in a correct way (laughs) and, and getting across the point of what um the question was and then I don't think I heard the answer until I got back and listened back but yeah so um, I wanted to ask as well about Opal and Nev, and it's kind of a bit of an obvious question, but when, seeing as we've been talking about cultural history and uh, different people's backgrounds, when you've been watching this book go out in the world, have you noticed different cultural reactions to where it's been released so far? That's a really interesting question. Um, yes, it's been interesting to... You know, I, I really wrote this book with Black women in mind. You know, it was sort of like my love letter to Black women. And I think there are a couple, you know, a, a few different dimensions of Black women that I explore in the book. And I was really hoping that um, those readers would see themselves in different ways in, in these characters. And they have. And that's been really gratifying and probably my favorite comments, you know, from black women who say, I see myself or I love Opal and I love that um, you've made her so fully human, you know, like, Mm -hmm. because for me, the first part of the book is really about building up this image of her. She's almost like a superheroine, you know, she's really kind of bold and she's this image of the strong quote unquote strong black woman and then the latter half of the book is about deconstructing that and getting at all the tender bits underneath the facade but it's also been interesting you know to get comments from like boomers like like my parents people (laughs) here's my parents age who very much remember this era and have a fondness for it um and to get notes from music fans and musicians you know um that's been very gratifying did your parents go to a lot of gigs and did they give you some information about what it might have been like at some of those big venues and with some of the artists they saw well no they didn't they didn't actually go to too many concerts you know um we're from jacksonville which is sort of a mid-sized city um so i don't know that a lot of bands came through there although interestingly leonard skinnerd who was my uh Bond Brothers in the book, which is, you know, a Southern <laughs> rock band. That was on they're, my list of questions to ask you, Donnie, was who were the Bond Brothers? Yeah, yeah they're Leonard Skinner, and they're right. from Jacksonville. And they were zoned, well, they went to Robert E. Lee High School, which was the school that I was zoned to go to, but I went to an academic magnet. Um, so that was me working out my anxieties around, <laughs> around yeah. that. There you go. Um, But they did, what they did do was they went to a lot of house parties and the house parties were often listening parties where there would be like a new album that everybody wanted to come over and like hang out and listen to the new record. So yeah, my mom tells me about those. Yeah. Yeah. And Excuse my ignorance. Were Leonard Skinner as borderline criminal as the Bond brothers in your book? (laughs) No, I don't think they were criminal. I don't, yeah, I don't, at least... 
I don't think so. I don't think they were criminal. Um, but you know, they, they were sort of the standard bearers for that kind of Southern pride, uh, very complicated. White you know, Southern pride. White Southern pride. Exactly. Thank yeah. you for making that clarification because I'm a <laughs> Southerner too, and I, yeah. <laughs> I am black and it's a whole different thing going on. Yeah. But that white Southern pride with the Confederate flag, you know, they of course sang Sweet Home Alabama, which Mary Clayton was also, also sang background vocals on, which was complicated as she talks about, you know, and then she later did a cover of Neil Young's Southern Man, which was the answer yeah. to Sweet Home Alabama. It's all this like, it's so interesting. The actual history is so fascinating. It is. Yeah. And again, I kind of, I forget sometimes that, because I, so at university, um, I studied, I did a four-year course, which meant I had a year studying at a university in America, which was not what I was expecting. Um, But my, the title of my university course doesn't exist anymore, probably because it was a problematic title, but it was American and Commonwealth Arts. Um, But in terms of content, it was incredible because it was American social history, um, African and Canadian and Australian authors, um, Indian photography, like there was so much in it. Um, But I sort of forget sometimes that people don't necessarily know (laughs) all of that or that just those references and, and yeah, yeah, how loaded so much. So loaded. Loaded is the perfect word for it. Yeah. Yeah. And you write about um, cultural context now, what you're saying earlier, because Mm. And again, when you mentioned the Confederate flag there, Dawning, um, there was a moment where I was reading your book and, and I was thinking, well, when I was growing up, right, uh, that was on the General Lee. That was on Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. Right? Oh, and we loved that car. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. Kids. It was cool, right? Loved and- the show, loved the car, wanted the car. Oh, yeah. Always tried to get in dad's car through the open window, never opening the door. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then it was only when there was something in the news about the flag. I thought, what, the one off the General Lee? What's the problem with that? I didn't know. Well, I and you, you know, referenced that in the book. I'm so glad you yes. did. I'm, I'm thinking Dukes of Hazard. I'm reading you, but yes. you mentioned Dukes of Hazard in the book. Yes. Well, I, I think about this all the time. You know, my cousin Mike and I uh, grew up loving that car. I think he had a little toy version of it. And we were children, we had no idea. And our parents trying to preserve our childhoods oh. and keep us happy. You know, of course they had a problem with it, but they never really talked about it because we were kids and we just thought the car was cool and it wasn't any more complicated than that. But of course, when you get older and you realize what this flag is sort of symbolizing. And for me, it really hit home leaving the South and going other places clear across the country. I was in Oregon, had a flat tire and got towed to a gas station that was plastered in the Confederate flag. Well, we're not in the South, I'm in the West. So what is this symbolizing? What does this mean? What is this a dog whistle for? Um, and that's you know when I really started to think about, you know, this is, um, this is really triggering and really traumatic. I think flags are quite problematic much of the time. Um, I am not into football, so I don't know, Phil, you might have a different take on it because obviously the England flag often gets used uh, in a football. George's cross gets used, yeah. And we've got a big (laughs) tournament coming up, the Euros, the European Championships coming up. And um, yeah, I think that if people want to show that as a display of solidarity to the football team, I kind of have less, I have fewer problems with that than say a random Thursday when I'm driving around and you'll see a flagpole in someone's garden. Yeah. I find that a bit bit weird, right? Well, even now, you know, uh, to your point, the American flag and, and, Um, there's such a very sort of scary nationalist fervor (laughs) going on right now that even when I see an American flag, I, I feel a little hesitant about Mm -hmm. like, who's living in that house? Like what, you know, who are those people and, um, what do they think of me? And I have the Chet Bond character, you know, the, the front man of the Bond brothers. He goes from sort of displaying a huge Confederate flag to displaying a, a giant US flag in his backyard. But some of his opinions and feelings remain scarily the same. It's a- Is that not, you know where you live, has that not dissipated since we said goodbye to the Donald? Oh. <laughs> Well, there's been a lot going on in the news, I have to say. Um, 
among the Republican Party uh, that is is quite terrifying. The Republican Party is basically right now the party of Trump, even though he's gone, he's off Twitter, thank God, um, but there's still very much loyalty to him. And there is a lot being done to undermine democracy here right now. It's, it's actually a very terrifying time. Yeah, I'm very yeah. worried about the midterm elections. I'm very worried. That's interesting because we're kind of the images we get are that since President Biden came to power, that you know things seem to have calmed down a, a tad, and there's there's less fervency being cooked up online. I don't know whether that's an accurate perception, but that's a perception that's coming over the pond. Well, it's definitely. Um, I don't wake up terrified of what he said on Twitter. I think in that sense things have calmed down, and I think that you know, the functioning of government is actually getting back to a place where, you know, things are happening that should be happening and the government is taking care of people. And, um, but I think that there's a real fight going on for the soul of this country. And um, it's a real test to our democratic principles because voting laws are being changed. What's happening on a state by state level um, is, very scary. And it's more like that state by state level, as opposed to the federal level. Mm -hmm. um, in the states, things are getting insane, you know, and I still have family in the South. My, my family is in Florida. And there's a lot being done there to make it harder for people, particularly black people to vote. It's, um, yeah, it's terrifying. There's no other yeah. word for it. Um, I don't think but um, I know that our time's going to run out shortly. And there's obviously so much we could talk about for hours. But I think so I write as well, and there isn't time to go into it, into this at all, but I know that at some point, and I don't think I'm a smart enough writer yet to be able to do this, but uh, I really st struggle with my sense of identity in terms of being a white British woman. Like, I don't particularly want to go into my uh, family tree right now. There's kind of, there's a big sort of ancestry thing that goes on in the UK where people really want to find out about their ancestors. And I'm like, aren't we all just gonna be shit? <laughs> Like, you know, I don't think there's a lot of pride to be had there. Uh, if, you know, if anything, there's more of a reckoning and a, an understanding of it. Um, but yeah, in terms of kind of what then you sort of use as your creative outlet, there's a whole kind of mess of stuff that I probably need to figure out at some point, but I'm not smart. Is there a question in there? Yet. There isn't a question in there, sorry. Was that just free therapy? <laughs> I was just like, yeah, generally. Do you want to do you want to confide in Dawny that you've got some wrongans in your family? Are you going to complain about that? <laughs> well, I, I have it well. Nothing's from a gangster family, Dawny. <laughs> I'm not from a gangster family. Genuinely some of, true. Some of my As family revealed on previous episodes. <laughs> some Wait. of my family come from the East End of London, so we're yeah. uh, Cockneys and. Um, yeah, again, I, th I think it's just, as we were saying earlier, cultural context. So what people call it like salt of the earth people. I'm like, like how salt of the earth are we talking? Like, what was their salt? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's great that you even just like acknowledge that. I think that's the fight that is happening in the States. Like a lot of white people just don't even want to acknowledge that there are like, it's just the history. It's just, it's just, it is what it is. And if you can't even admit that there were deep, deep, deep problems, like, how are we ever gonna, how are we ever gonna move forward if there's not even an acknowledgement, you know, so... Indeed. Um, just before we get some recommendations from you, can we talk briefly about two things, which I know you may not want to talk about either of them, but firstly, are there any interesting conversations about adaptations of Opal and Nev? And secondly, what you're working on fiction-wise right now? Yeah, um, so I would be hugely excited if there were to be a screen adaptation. Um, I certainly saw scenes in the book playing out in my head, you know, it would be- Yeah, we did too, it's a very visual book. Yeah, yeah. thank you. And thank that photo, you. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would love for it to happen. And my fingers are crossed. And that's all I can say about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, are, they, are they crossed because people are already talking? Have you got people, Dawna, yet? And are your people talking to uh, their I do, people? I do have people. And let me tell you, it's fabulous. I love having. <laughs> I love my people there. They are fantastic. They look out for me. Shout out to them. 
Um, in terms of what I'm working on next, I'm just at the point where I'm thinking about characters again, and I have a set of four and I'm trying to figure out who they are and what situations they're getting into. But I think I want to put them in the 90s, which is sort of thinking about my college years. Um, yeah. And I have no idea what happens, but I'm just thinking about who they are, who they are to each other and who they become. But I love working in a specific era and I love, you know, thinking about characters over time. So mm -hmm. I think I want to do that again, but it would probably be more of a traditional narrative, but hopefully still compelling. <laughs> and just on a broad sense, to just to help, well, both of us and, and presumably people listening to this who, who also would like to be able to write. When you say you've got four characters and you just kind of, mm -hmm. how do you do that? Do you literally go on walks and let them mull in your mind? Have you got a, a big blackboard somewhere that you write do. down? I actually, yeah. yes, I have a whiteboard and I kind of like, sometimes I'll write little dossiers for each character, you know? everything from who their parents are to, you know, what TV they watch and how they dress, you know, things like that. Or sometimes I'll just start writing a scene with one of them. And then I like the character traits come out, you know, mm -hmm. wherever it leads me. And a lot of that writing doesn't end up being in the book. It's just me finding the characters and figuring them out. And how often do you go back to those dossiers? Because I would imagine once you've written them, you need to memorize them almost, don't you? Oh, no, I never, I never want to be that like strict to those things. Okay. And I'm never that strict to an outline. You know, I didn't use an outline for Opal and Nev, a very light one, but that went out the window several times because I always want the experience to feel organic. I want one thing organically to lead to another. And so the dossiers can change. It's just really a starting place. And actually just for my peace of mind as well, as somebody who's written one book is I'm writing my second at the moment, um, but I'm not published yet. How long did it take for you to get Opal and Nev <laughs> written uh, and done and out there? Yeah. Uh, it took me five years to write one full draft and then I revised it for another two. And do you mind me asking, is that because you were also working? Um, for some of it. So yeah. for the first for the first two years, I was working full time. And then I left my job to go to graduate school for creative writing. So I was working on the novel while I was in graduate school. And then I finished right before I graduated. And then when I got back to New York, I was doing revisions. Because yeah. I tease Natalie a fair bit on this podcast that she's not got her edits done. And she always seems to be in another set of edits. But joking aside, it's because you also do about eight jobs, right? And yeah. yeah. Kids, yeah. It's, like... it's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. And for me at the moment, I've got two kids, five and two. And just doing my radio job and doing this podcast is enough. To... I can't write at the moment. Just trying to find time right. to do all that and do them properly and execute them well. Right. And read the books and do the research. You know what I mean? So right. I've got every sympathy for writers who are trying to plot out a book, write it, and then do edits. It just... You know, it's, it's a full-time job in, in part-time hours, isn't it? I think, and I think it is like, um, I have found it really useful gleaning different bits of information. So we spoke to Erin Kelly, psychological thriller writer in the UK. And she was saying, because sometimes I find it hard and sometimes I find it okay. And I couldn't quite work out what I was doing right or wrong at various points. And she was saying, well, it depends what stage you're at in your book. So if you're in the kind of the plotting or the developing characters, you kind of do need a bit of that headspace because you're just like, Mm -hmm. thinking them but if you are sort of editing mm -hmm. or revising things then actually it's easier to do a bit more piecemeal and an hour here and an hour there and be busy right. on other things because you already kind of have worked out the other stuff so yeah I'm, I'm kind of in that zone at the moment with um trying to write my second one and I'm just like kind of daydreaming a lot and I've got the characters and I've got the kind of rough layout but I just sort of need a bit more of that space to yeah. develop it um but yeah it'll come Best of luck to you on that. I know it's it's hard, but it's very exciting once you have it in a shape that you feel like I just need the time to like sit and get it yeah. on the page. You know, that's yeah. exciting. And it's fun as well. Like it's it's fun making them up. Yeah, it is fun. Yeah. Let's get some recommendations from you then for other books uh, for people to tuck into that you've loved, Dawny. Yeah. So there was one that came out last year. It's a nonfiction book. It's called Black Diamond Queens. If you loved Opal and Nev, this is a book about African-Americans contributions to rock and roll African-American women. It's by Maury Mann and it's 
got chapters on everybody from Big Mama Thornton all the way up through Tina Turner and a lot of very cool women in between, including Betty Davis, who was a 70s cult funk rock star in 1970s New York to goodness, LaBelle, you know, who were uh, Nona Hendrix of LaBelle was a great inspiration for, for Opal Jewel. I really love that book. And I learned so what's it called so again? much from it. It's called Black Diamond Queens. Looking that up now, sticking that on my list. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's expensive, man. It's twenty one ninety nine. Wow. It's worth every, what would it be? It's pennies here. Yeah. Yeah. Pennies. Yeah. We'd say pennies yeah. too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> worth every penny. You're right. I'll stop being tight and I'll get it ordered. Go on. What else have you got for us? For oral histories, my favorite is called Live from New York. It is a history of Saturday Night Live, which is the, the sketch comedy show. It's so got, good. In fact, yes. I purchased it after I'd done the, the uh, Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary exhibition in New York. We just happened to be there on our honeymoon. Oh, amazing. When it was on. So we did the exhibition and it was there. This gorgeous hardback purchased it. It's brilliant. It's so great. It's so great. It's packed with stories. It is really juicy, you know, so much drama behind the scenes. There's a quote from Dana Carvey, I think it is, where he's, it's on the back jacket and he says, I just would go in my dressing room and cry. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, so of course it's funny, but it also has those moments that are just mm. like heartbreaking and the fights and the drugs and the relationships. It's, it's a really good read. That's cool. I should say as well, if people haven't seen um, 20 Feet from Stardom, the oh, yeah. documentary yeah, yeah. that you were talking about earlier, that's... So I think it's on Netflix right now here. Yeah, it's so good. And it does feature Mary Clayton and yes. a whole host of incredible artists. And I just, I remember there's one bit that is kind of a spoiler, but not ish, that comes towards the end of that documentary where you could, you're just watching this, these fantastic artists and you're like, why aren't, you know, why do we not, you know, why haven't they been given their prominence or whatever? And then Elton John comes on and just says, I just don't think they had the songs. And I'm, I'm a bit like, did, didn't they though or did like just like the gatekeepers not give right. them the songs right right <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. or the budgets you know yeah the production teams mm -hmm. all of that yeah fascinating and there's also a really good oral history of the oscars that i've got um i can't remember Ooh. what it's called now <laughs> that's really similarly like some of the stuff that went on behind the scenes there and there's a fascinating book as well called i think it's called dish which is the history of the National Enquirer. Oh, which I, I gotta pick that one up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that sounds good. And I think it was founded in Florida. I've read it a long time ago, but I think it, it sort of had its humble beginnings in Florida. Uh, it's kind of like, sounds of right. like gossip writing in the States. Um, yeah, that's yeah. fascinating too. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Dawn, we've loved it. I'm sorry we've taken so much of your time, but we love you. We love the book. We loved everything about doing this episode of Bestsellers. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, this was great. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you so much. And I uh, can't wait to read what comes next. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. This was great. Oh, that's made me feel warm and fuzzy again, um, <laughs> hearing Dawny. I think she genuinely enjoyed that. And just to reassure you, if you need the reassurance that uh, we did check with her after we'd finished recording that she was okay with the discussion that we had about the N-word and the use of that kind of racial language. Because I think it's important for our guests to feel comfortable here on this podcast. And she was absolutely fine with that, which is why all that is in what you've just been listening to. Yeah, and also editing this week's episode, Phil and I share editing duties, but this one landed on me. And... I was starting to sweat a bit here, listening to it back a little because you're like, you know, you? all these conversations are really uncomfortable. And also I did that thing as well where I was like, oh, just shut up, Natalie. You know that like <laughs> it's not my it's not my place to wang on about some of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm not saying it's good to be uncomfortable, but I think it's good to recognize you perhaps need to even do some more education or just listen to people more and and understand the world around us right well a couple of things i would add to that firstly i would say that um not just here but also whenever i've done a radio program my opinion is that there is no such thing as a conversation you can't have mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. just have to find a sensitive way of having it correct um and i think that um you didn't wang on to reassure you <laughs> and uh, uh, if ever there was a place you are entitled to express your own opinion it's in your own podcast you know 
Yeah. And if you'd like to do that, then set up your podcast by all means and we'll subscribe to yours. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, I want to just add a bit more context to a couple of the books that I mentioned at the end that I had read a long time ago and I couldn't remember the authors. So one was about the Oscars and... That one is called Behind the Oscar, The Secret History of the Academy Awards by Anthony Holden, H-O-L-D-E-N. This is a book that came out in the mid-90s, which is when I read it, hence why I can't remember that much about the 90s or anything really. Um, And so it hasn't got a lot of the up-to-date things that have happened with the Oscars, but it's still fascinating uh, with behind the scenes of some of the just incredible things that happen there. And the other one that Hang I on, mentioned... Before we do the other one, I yeah. just want to do a, mit- a mitigation for you because yeah. I don't think you've realised quite what you've just said. Oh. When you say you don't remember a lot of the 90s, <laughs> you weren't totally off your nut, were you, for that decade? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I That's just... not like when Bez says you can't remember the 90s. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't, yeah, because um, my mum will be listening to this. No, I wasn't at all. <laughs> this is what I mean about wanging on. Why can't I just shut up sometimes, <laughs> honestly? <laughs> What is wrong with me? If ever you get arrested, um, don't don't say anything. <laughs> no, genuinely, I'm I'm quite innocent. I really am. Uh, the other book that I talked about was called Dish: The Inside Story on the World of Gossip, and this was the one that details the origins of the National Enquirer, amongst many other oh, yeah, papers. Yeah, yeah. And this is 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 a history of gossip from the 1930s onwards in publications, mainly in the US and the UK as well. And that is by an author called Jeanette Wall. It's fascinating. How many Oscars have you done? How many Oscars have I covered? Yeah. Um, I've only been out to Los Angeles to cover the Oscars once. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. Well, I did three. Mm. And um, the best one <laughs> was being on the roof of the um, Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. Yeah. Doing an outside broadcast. And being, you know, when you're really busy and you're not really, you kind of, people are being presented in front of you all the time and you get a, a scrap of paper with their name and title. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you, you kind of know, because you've had a production meeting, you know who's due to be on the roof with you in the next three hours. And then you don't know who they are until you get the bit of paper. And uh, at one point, I remember look, queuing to the news and looking up thinking, oh, this is exciting. Look, they're all arriving over there now and I'm on air and oh, this is amazing. And then I saw that there was a sniper train right on me <laughs> and, and the snipers were hidden in the lettering, the logo lettering for the hotel that was bang opposite ours. Whoa. And uh, yeah, that was a, that was a moment. I thought, wow, you can clearly see what I'm doing. You know, I'm no threat to these stars, but yeah, it was, it was that moment we think. And also they can clearly <laughs> see what you're doing and they still think you look a little bit shifty. So <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You see headphones in a microphone and yet still he wants to put me in these crosshairs. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, I was also staying in the Roosevelt hotel, which I think is a, a classic anyway. And doing that thing of trying to get interviewees and it's, you know, everyone's scrambling for the same people and then didn't manage to, but then got in the lift uh, with Naomi Watts to go down. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, all right, Naomi. And did you have the courage to say, oh, listen, while we're here? I didn't. I bottled it. Right. Yeah. Did you play it cool? I, uh, kind of-ish. I probably didn't. I, I think this is what I mean when I say I can't remember much is because I think it's more that I continually embarrass myself throughout my life and then I just suppress the memories <laughs> so that I don't have to relive it ever again so yeah I couldn't tell you what I said I, I imagine it was something terribly British and awful I don't want to commit you to further work yeah sources close to me are reporting that you're going to tweet some links out to the books that Dawny <laughs> recommended can you confirm or deny I it? can confirm that that will have happened by the time you're listening to this excellent all right well we'll see you next week then yeah, can't wait. Do you, want to, do you want to say who it is next week or should we leave it a secret? Uh, Depends on whether I get the edit done. I was going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the truth. We can put as much showbiz stardust on this as we want, but actually, if I don't pull my finger out, it'll be one author, and if I do pull my finger out, it'll be another. And if you have read, or if this inspires you to go and read Dawny Walton's The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, let us know. Like, get in touch with either of us on Twitter. is probably the best place at this juncture, I would say. And it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Yeah. Well, we do have an email. And the email address is bestsellerspodcast, all one word, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. Till next time. Till next time.